This is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and today on Interview with the PD Pod, I am going to be interviewing somebody who I've really looked forward to talking to for a long time, and that is Dennis Wenger. Uh, Dr. Wenger is longtime fellowship director at Rady Hospital in San Diego and is probably one of the more interesting people who I've ever interacted with in our field. Uh, he's an incredible thinker a tremendous educator, well-known researcher, and really is probably one of the people most responsible for putting Rady on the map as a center for excellence in education within children's orthopedists. I'm always amazed how for, I feel like, the majority of my career, Dr. Wenger ran the uh, best paper section at the annual meeting. And I think that a lot of this is related to his ability to really extract information and come up with really poignant thoughts on research in a pretty uh, short amount of time, um, such as the time it takes for uh, for somebody to present their research. Dennis has a wide-ranging uh, number of interests, but I think that at the forefront of that is the fact that he's a really voracious reader. Um, and as he'll talk about in the podcast, this is something that he dedicates quite a bit of time to, and I think that this has allowed him to become a really worldly physician, uh, probably more so than just about anybody else who I've interacted with in our specialty. On top of that, I just really enjoy talking to him. Um, I've had the opportunity to talk to him at a number of conferences and uh, still actually remember the first time that we ever met, which he probably won't remember, where we shared a cab back to the airport uh, after an IPOS meeting along with uh, Dr. Greg Mencio. So please enjoy this very wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Wenger. I think that he's truly a uh, somebody who should be uh, cherished within our organization, and I know that his former fellows, many of whom are friends of mine, really respect him tremendously, and uh, I'm sure he'll look forward to hearing his thoughts on a number of topics. So as always, thank you for your uh, interest in this media, in this uh, podcast concept, and to Carter Clement for his guidance and for allowing this to continue to occur. And I hope that everybody is having a good fall and uh, that you enjoy this hour and a half talk with Dr. Wenger. So uh, this is October, and uh, this is a Sunday morning, and I'm having my discussion today with Dennis Wenger, uh, who was the longtime fellowship director and really leader at Rady Children's Hospital. Um, and this has been a discussion that I've been wanting to have for a long, long time, uh, both because I find you an incredibly interesting person and I've always enjoyed talking to you a lot, uh, but also because I think you have a tremendous amount of insight on our field, uh, where it's come, where it's hopefully going. And uh, a lot of that is due to sort of pioneering work that you've done on, on really chronicling our history. So thank you for doing this this morning. Great. Very happy to be with you. It's a pleasure to have this experience. So I wanted to start uh, really at your start. Um, and you were kind enough to send me some reflections that you have as you sort of stepped down in some of your roles at Rady uh, that outline your background. And I'd heard a little bit of it at t from time to time through talks that you'd given at POSNA. But the uh, your upbringing, I, I can't imagine there are too many other uh, either current or past pediatric orthopedists who started out in a Mennonite community, uh, especially those who are one of 11 children. So I wanted to hear 
a little bit for for the audience uh, in particular, um, some of your background and and how this, meaning your career in pediatric orthopedics, really started. Uh, yes, I grew up in Ohio and grew up as a Mennonite, which many people aren't terribly familiar with, but it's part of the what they call the Radical Reformation in Switzerland. When people, after the Reformation occurred, they uh, a group of people that still felt they should not serve in the military and wanted to live a more traditional agricultural life, kind of resisted and moved away even from the Lutheran Church. As be- things became more militaristic in Europe, um, they were trying to make these farmers serve in the army, even though it was against their religion. And so many of them emigrated first to an area, an area of southeast Germany, then to Holland, and then to Pennsylvania. Because Pennsylvania, as you know, was founded by Quakers, and he was looking for peace-loving people that wanted free or inexpensive land. And so my forefathers came from Switzerland to this country in about 1730 or 40. They lived around Lancaster County, Pennsylvania for a generation or two and then headed to Ohio. And I'm part of that uh, broad sort of diaspora that uh, began to settle the Northwest Territories and eventually the West of the U.S. My family had been farmers in every generation up until mine. And my father was a very successful farmer. But uh, several of us decided we were not so much were wanting to continue that tradition, and I decided to go on to university and sort of break some ties with them, but we still have very, very strong ties. All of 11, us, all 11 of us are healthy and working in different parts of the country, and it's been a great success. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Um, now, one of the things that you had uh, sh- shared in that document, A, was some pictures of uh, sort of family life with you growing up, uh, your, uh, I believe, three of your sisters and your mother on a horse and buggy, um, and you mentioned your father getting a tractor in 1944. Um, and so this was a little bit of, uh, of a cha- transition into a more, I guess, industrial uh, upbringing for you. Um, you also mentioned a bit about your education, and in particular public education. And when we talked uh, before this, you asked me about my education. What are your thoughts on your sort of upbringing from an educational standpoint? Well, first of all, just one clarification on the picture of the buggy. That was from the 1930s before any of my siblings were born, and none of my siblings have ever driven a horse and buggy. Ah, And so that was my mother and her sisters right after the Depression and before their family had a car. Um, The question relates to education. Well, many of the Mennonites still, the stricter ones, do not even let their children complete high school. So I have first cousins, multiple first cousins. I have about 45 of them because Mennonites have big families. I would say one-third of those have not finished high school, and they'll have them go to a Christian sort of school, go through age 16, and then prepare themselves for crafts and work on farms, etc. Fortunately, my mother and father had both graduated from high school and both had a good appreciation for education. And so they encouraged education and and allowed us to be in the public education system. Because in these very traditional church groups, the public public education would be considered something that would be slightly risky for children because you might move away from the church and their traditions. But my parents encouraged education, but never saved money for college or even asked me if I was going to go to college because they just assumed that I would likely stay there and be a farmer. Uh, So we sort of had to figure this out on our own in our family. If you wanted to go to college, you better do all the communications, 
get all the money together because my parents had absolutely nothing to do with it, but they didn't resist it. They understood it because they had been successful students in high school and they were open to allow the next generation to explore and be different. So I went to public high school. Uh, <clears throat> I applied only to two universities, Ohio University and Ohio State. And I got a better scholarship at Ohio University, so I went there and majored in biology. I started in engineering, but I didn't quite think I had the right brain for advanced engineering mathematics. And the biological sciences were so much easier for me. And subsequently, I've talked to a fair number of people that uh, might have decided to first be a physicist or a biophysicist or something, and then might switch to medicine, which is sort of a combination of an interest in science and an interest in people. And so I went there to uh, undergraduate, then to the University of Cincinnati to medical school. And that's where I got interested in orthopedic surgery. So I'm curious. I, I want to uh, unpack the, the, your discussion about uh, the biologic sciences versus physical sciences, because uh, you also mentioned to me that the perfect recipe for an orthopedic surgeon is a parent who is a teacher and a parent who is an engineer. Um, and I think it's commonly thought that we are more engineering mechanical based uh, within our specialty, and yet your brain sort of uh, gravitated towards the biologic sciences. Do you think that that had any long-term impact or long-term role, I should say, in your, you know, in your practice, in your, in your clinical career? Which thing are you asking that had an effect? The, the fact that your mind tended to gravitate oh. more towards the biologic sciences rather right, than right. sort of the mechanical engineering aspect. Right, right. Well, I think that <clears throat> it helped me to understand my, um, you know, my sense of biology and taxonomy and organization is there's a lot of pure logic when you first learn about evolution and the sequence of ideas and how, how thoughts develop and how it changes with new information. And I found that absolutely fascinating and easy to follow and understand it, understandable for a logic brain. And I guess I have the sense that biologic majors may be easier to express or, or that logic more easily expresses it, where I, as, there, there is a lot of that in mathematics as well. But I, I felt the biologic sciences kept me from wanting to be the, uh, a, a basic researcher and wanted me to be oriented toward the logic of, like some might call it soft science, the biological sciences. It's funny because as you say this, I, I hear a lot that I can you know uh, relate to. Um, I tended to. I was a molecular biology major, and I have gravitated a little bit away from biomechanical research and and like you said, bench research. Um, I I think that the the correlations and the relationships that you uh, were discussing are, are much more on my wavelength as well. So that's interesting. Well, another um, thing I would add on because I sometimes irritate my trainees and medical students about the nature of the pre-med brain. Because our parents or, or people that went into medicine in our era were very easily able to get into medical school in all the most advanced areas of training in our field, even though we might not have been brilliant. The modern student, who's not quite so bright, and I call the, the children of doctors not quite so bright. You know, they're not the sons of astrophysicists at Caltech with a mother who's a super researcher. And so they're having a harder time getting into medicine because they're not as shrewd and smart as they thought. And medicine is getting 
more scientific and more demanding. And of course, you hear many people say, if I were applying for orthopedic residency today, I would never get in. Yeah. And it's sort of true. And so it has, the, uh, the ideal mind for medicine, in my view, isn't the absolutely most brilliant person in, the, in this culture. They should do astrophysics. And medicine is for the slightly dull. I, of course, am uh, making a bit of a joke of it. Yeah, no, no. I I think that that's a it's a tremendous amount of insight there, and and I was going to get into that a little bit later, but I think along those lines, yeah, and you uh, you mentioned in your reflections that you went to Cincinnati because and that it offered you a gritty real world experience. Those were your quotes, and so along what you were just saying, do you think that? That is something that has changed the way that our, our trainees, our medical students are, um, I, I guess, sort of gaining access to, uh, to real world medical experience because of the fact that they that they're, because they're a little bit more dull and uh, to use your words, they are um, uh, they're needing a little bit more of a, you know, a real world uh, boots on the ground kind of trauma experience or, or complex medical experience. Yes, I, I'm not sure it's so different as to what they need, but I <clears throat> believe that it really, really helps to make that transition to understand what you're getting into, to have your medical school training or a part of your training in a place that has a big city-county hospital system. I have some concerns, as do many others, that medical students are not allowed to have the experience that they need to have because of the legal system in our country and how much it's limited. They're doing the initial and physicals or... At the Denver General Hospital, I did a month of anesthesia when I was a straight surgery intern. What an experience. And there would be two staff on at night and two medical students, and they'd have four operating rooms running at the same time. So huh. you yourself, as an intern, were running the machines, adjusting the halothane, kind of by telephone call from another room, knowing <laughs> what to do if the patient might be crashing. And there are, there are so many limitations now on medical students and how much they are allowed to do. So I think, yes, a gritty experience is important. There's some medical schools where you sort of have to wear a sport coat and a tie and you kind of attend lectures and you're not allowed to do anything in clinic but watch. So things have changed. I think the more basic it is, I always say the ideal, ideal medical school training is for, to have a large number of patients who have no idea the difference between an intern, a medical student, and the chief of surgery. They just know this person's here to help me. And let's hope he get it, gets it right, because if he doesn't, I will die. And so taking responsibility early, I think, is extremely important. I saw it on the farm, and luckily trained during a period where you were given huge and grave responsibilities without people over, overlooking you so much. So you obviously have seen you know, generations now of students, residents, and fellows coming through. And I, I, I think of our opportunity here in Atlanta at the Grady Hospital, which is not too dissimilar from a Parkland or a, a L.A. County Hospital, uh, as, as a fertile ground for what you were just alluding to. But, but at the same time, you're right. I think that at least in discussion with my, uh, with my residents and my uh, trauma colleagues, the amount of uh, responsibility placed on our trainees is less. Uh, and this is obviously a place where it should be a fertile ground. So how do you think we can deal with this moving forward? How do you, as a, you know, uh, looking at it more from a, with a peds lens, how do you think the pediatric orthopedist uh, who is looking at the residents coming out for their fellowship training can sort of sort through the fact that some of the 
the residents won't have had that kind of uh, immersive experience at a trauma center where they really get to do that kind of stuff. Well, I think that it is remediable in a way by sort of making a transition, or first picking a person of great character, great work ethic, and who is willing to give a huge amount of their time into a system. Because this total commitment for taking care of the patient who's not going to make it unless you're there is uh, still to extend exists. And the way we've done it in our fellowship training program is to allow our fellows to take primary call uh, along with the senior staff and not having the senior staff come in. And so it, it would, I can't say exactly how it should be dealt with, but people of high quality can come into a new program that's run a little differently and do better. Um, I just, I don't mean to beat on a dead horse, but we used to, all medical students who came to San Diego and came to Children's Hospital, we on their one month rotation, you know, they're sort of doing their rotation to impress you so you interview them. We would have them do dictations. Huh. We had all of our residents do dictations. And the medical students themselves could dictate, and all you had to do was go over it, check a few words, and sign it. Now there's not a chance in the world the medical student can do his own dictation. So you have to work on getting the system set up. In our fellowship, we went through this period where we uh, decided that we should no longer be ACGME accredited because the rules had become through Social Security or Medicaid that you could not uh, uh, have a fellow do primary, primary responsibility for a patient. And so we drew, withdrew from that. So we could continue what we think is the single most thing, most important thing in fellowship, and that is to have a transition when you are actually a junior staff person and have, being closely supervised from a distance. So that your first year of practice when you stumble a lot is already taken care of by your fellowship training. You yeah, can avoid those terrible thing. mistakes. Yeah, we, and, and we've done the same thing. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because we went through, when I was only at Emory, we had uh, a little bit more of the ACGME model, even though, interestingly, we weren't ACGME accredited. And now that we've merged with a, with a children's group, we do the same thing. And I think that, as you know, Josh Murphy is out here and part of our group, and he also feels that that's one of the ways that allowed him to become most independent and, you know, pure uh, thinker is to make those uh, decisions early on with the backing of a, of a faculty member, but in, you know, when, where he's the primary caregiver. Right. It's just remarkable how people above medicine have come to make these decisions. You know, the leaders of Medicaid, and I went to a conference in Washington, D.C., meeting with some of the Medicaid officials to see if this could be changed. And of course, they see the world entirely from their perspective. And all of these people live in immense fear of lawyers, Mm -hmm. And medicine now is in an in a era where doctors are so fearful and so unhappy about how their centers are run, and mainly because they are not run by doctors. I just happened to hear a little talk that one of the Mayo Clinic staff gave that happened to be recorded on a computer program about how the Mayo Clinic has always had all leaders at the highest level be MD doctors, and how that has maintained the culture that surgeons and doctors make the decisions, and particularly about training. Who would better know how to train someone to become a responsible surgeon than a group of six or eight or ten good surgeons who know what you're trying to train them to be rather than a Medicare, Medicare official? But the deans of medical schools, many of the CEOs of children's hospitals, etc., there's not a chance they're willing to give the surgeons the responsibility of designing their program and supervising their trainees. 
So do you think that this has translated into, I don't want to call it the quality, but the, the, the uh, familiarity of our residents who are coming through into your training program as, uh, you know, as they make that transition with, uh, you know, providing sort of uh, primary medical care, complete medical care, I should say. Um, it, it tends to be at our institution that I, I struggle with compartmentalization at times where the residents, you know, are able to do certain things, but they don't necessarily have the global uh, view of the patient. I feel like the way even that I did, I was I came through right at the uh, transition into the 80-hour work week. So there was still, um, you know, I think a, a bit more responsibility placed on us. But have you seen that change really in the past decade? Yes, definitely. And, you know, it starts in medical school when they are given all these rules, such as, you know, during the last year telling them that they couldn't do anything because it was COVID time. Mm-hmm. Yet their staff, the nurses, everyone else in the system. What an amazing lesson, mental lesson to give to a medical student in the United States that you say, for this full year, you're just going to do things by Zoom. You're not going to go to any conferences. <laughs> you're yeah. not going to have any rotations. A remarkable decision regarding young, very healthy people who would be very unlikely to get the disease. And so... It really has been a major issue. We do see residents that come through uh, that aren't, and also the work ethic. You talked about 80-hour work weeks. One of my pet peeves is to use the term work, especially as an orthopedic resident. And one advantage I had of working on the farm is that all medical school education, internship, and residency seemed quite easy compared to what it was like on the farm. And so many young people come in with already an entitled concept that this 80-hour work week, work week to train a surgeon is for sure a good idea. <clears throat> I think there should be two tracks for training surgeons. One with an unlimited work hour circumstance and allow them to finish in three years and then have one for those who feel easily stressed by doing too much at once and really prefer a five-year program of slow, gradual uh, adjustment. How we have done this is to really look at the, the character. And there are certain families who are totally trained into working forever and that work is fun. And that's what I try to say to people. Don't tell me this is work when you're coming to learn how to take care of a patient and operate on them. This is education. You're going to school. So I don't call it work hours. I call it education hours. And the smart kids from the right kinds of families are not very interested in limiting their education hours if they're high-energy people. Some people are not high-energy. Some people are pampered, and they should be trained at a different level and a different speed. That's interesting. I, I, I completely uh, see that. And, and now, now, granted, I came from a family of a physician and a teacher, so I probably wouldn't fit this mold. But, uh, but working in the Southeast... We have a large number or large uh, diversity of applicants, and I've found that a number of them actually come from relative agrarian backgrounds, um, and those tend to be some of the hardest working uh, residents we have. The, and uh, and you're right; I think that they look at every opportunity as a privilege. Um, and and yet, you know, we also have excellent residents who come from the other side as well. It, it's it's sort of an interesting uh, dichotomy. Well, it's an in, having an interest in sociology has helped me. And I would say <clears throat> your insurance against getting a lazy resident is to have a student whose parents came here as immigrants and ran a small grocery store 
And they worked with their parents to keep that store open every night, every day, every weekend. That's who you want to be training. That's uh, that's really fascinating. I want to get I want to move on uh, a little bit because, and I could talk about that side of things for forever. But along the way, uh, again, in your reflections, and I've heard you talk about this uh, numerous times before, you had some tremendous mentors, and I think that in in talking to you at conferences and and offline. I'm struck by how much you value this as an important role, not just the role of academician who creates academic knowledge and not just the role of clinician who cares for, for patients, but really a true dedication to the concept of uh, mentoring. And I'd love to hear some thought on, uh, on that and how, how they molded you. Again, I've, I've gotten a chance to read your reflections, but I'd love to hear it from you. Well, I, it's strange because I have always, not even necessarily my parents say you must respect your teacher. I mean, I was raised in a family where you respected anyone who was senior to you in any area. But I have benefited tremendously from proper mentors. But it's very, very interesting. When this whole thing came out of sort of our organizations and POSNA and the academy and other things saying, we're going to start mentoring committees and we're going to get mentors and we're going to get mentees who will sign up for it. It actually kind of turned me off. It's sort of a natural process. You know, those who really want to learn and are curious will see their mentors, they'll find them in their day-to-day -day work. And it's a, little bit, it's a little bit artificial when a culture has to design this for you. Like my parents never, ever said, now when you're at work, you should find someone who's really impressive and accomplishes a lot, and you should be sure you interview with them and try to work in their lab. The last thing in the world. So I think it's a sort of a natural process. And as a person who came from a fairly simple family background, I was always extremely impressed, whether it was a high school chemistry teacher or a university professor, when someone really grasped my mind and made the information easy. One of my teaching philosophies is when you're trying to explain uh, catarrhal classifications or some other uh, type of, of somewhat complex circumstance, if you yourself can remember when you first understood the process. Huh. And so I think I have a good memory for what made it clear, and then you sort of try to remember the sentences or the drawings or the ideas that made it clear for you, and you try to use the same for other students. Undergraduate school was my first, I guess, heroic uh, mentor after my parents, a guy who was a dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Ohio University, was also a professor of anatomy, PhD from University of Michigan. He was a classic teacher, the one you know can draw with both hands and use colored chalk to explain the urogenital system, et cetera. Just an unbelievable teacher. And then we had very, very advanced anatomy courses, uh, uh, comparative anatomy and uh, mammalian anatomy, where we worked in labs. And I became his lab, sort of chief lab person. And so I, when I see people like that, I say, boy, I would like to have a job like this guy does. Seems to be really interesting. He seems to really like his life. So he was the first. In medical school, I had several. Again, often immigrant, say immigrant German scientists in undergraduate school who were nutritionists, PhDs in every area. And those who could make it fun to learn and make you every day to want to go have always been sort of heroes to me. 
And so those were my early ones. And then as I get into surgery, it changed a bit as I started my internship and residency. So do you, uh, then it sounds like mentors may have, I should say a good mentor has a different sort of uh, overarching theme, if you will, depending a little bit on the stage of the mentee. Um, and so that a surgical mentor may be very different than a medical school mentor. What do you, th- are there common things other than sort of making learning exciting and, uh, and something that the mentee wants to do that make a great mentor? Yes. Well, I would say first, yeah, like I would say like, first of all, he shouldn't know that he is one. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a natural way. You know, the talent and skills and interest and boringness and everything are naturally distributed. And I would say, for me, I've always been a little bit allergic to boring, boring people who don't know how to laugh at things, don't know how to see the other side of the story. So I've always been attracted toward people who are interesting and fun to be around and sort of have a sort of sardonic way of looking at the world and how it's evolving. Are they different in surgery and non-surgery? Probably. In that some of the very best surgeons are a little bit impatient in the OR. Now it's probably one of those. You know, I think it was a very good mentor for surgeons in the OR as long as I liked them. And I thought they were enthusiastic. I mean, one of my rules for residents and fellows is don't expect to do any operation by yourself until I know for sure that you do great medical records and we have no complaints for the nurses and no calls because you forgot to do something. No one can become a surgeon in the modern America unless you are great with the paperwork, with coding, with EPIC, computers, etc., it's a privilege to learn surgery. And if you can't learn how to take care of patients on the floor and do your paperwork, why would anyone want you as their surgeon eventually? When they come to the OR, then I first see how much they have read. They always bring an article, often a technique article. It has to be posted on the wall. We go through the whole thing before I'm, I'm sure that I will allow them to operate. When they operate, I allow them to do a lot quickly if they're really well prepared, even young junior residents, if I see the right enthusiasm. I don't necessarily let the resident or the fellow do every step of every operation because it makes me slower than I want to be. So the temperament of a mentor and a teacher in non-surgical areas, I think pace is not so much of an issue. In surgery, you want to be sure that you teach a surgeon how to be prompt and efficient in the OR. So sometimes I'll do a part of the case. I'll say, you know, we've got five cases today and I'm going to do one third of each one and you won't know which third. It'll help us to get in, get out, get moving. And so I would say a surgical mentor and how he passes it on in surgery varies greatly. I'm sure Michael DeBakey versus um, Denton Cooley uh, versus others, they probably all had a different style. And was this something that you established with the mentee, with your your trainees right away? And I guess... uh, a corollary question to that would be, we all have trainees, especially I think more on the residency side, not that the residents are bad, but a lot of them want to go and do total joint surgery and you're doing, uh, well, maybe that, that's probably not the right example because that, there's some aspects of hip uh, work that, that's going to roll over, but maybe they want to do foot and ankle surgery or hand surgery and they're not really interested in pediatrics, but how do you bring the concept of preparation and the concept of surgical skills gain that may not necessarily be pertinent to what they want to do, but that are going to help them 
uh, over time. How, how do you establish that ahead of time? Well, when we have our orientation, we explain that. Okay. I tell them, every one of them, what I learned in medical school, and that is every rotation you go on, the staff on that rotation should think you love that area, and that's what you're going to go into. And we'll often get these letters of recommendation, knowing that quite a few students still do this, and people will say, you know, I really wish this person was going into OB-GYN because they worked with us and did research, and we loved him, <laughs> and they thought they were coming to be with us, but now they're coming with you. Our loss, your gain. So first of all, every medical student in every rotation needs to know, if I do not seem extremely interested, reading everything about it, and making my staff think I want to be a children's orthopedist, then I don't spend any time with them. I had a resident from one of it. We have several hospitals that send them with us. And he told us that he wanted to repeat our small mini hand rotation at our place rather than hearing about any hip and spine. And we absolutely refused. But we never allowed him to do any cases. Leadership is half inspiration and half punishment. <laughs> and you've got to explain this to them. You know, if you're not going to express a severe interest in this, I don't have to let you do a single case. You can come and watch. You can read and watch. I think you're making a terrible mistake. Because I want you, when you're on the hand service of our children's thing, on the spine service, whatever, for that staff to think, this person is great. They love this area. I think they're going to become a children's hip surgeon. Even though it's the farthest thing from your mind. So if that student isn't that smart, smart enough to know how to adapt to that, he's not someone you should be very interested in teaching. Now... Uh, I, I think that's great. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here taking notes uh, because I think that those are all incredibly useful uh, thoughts for myself. Um, I, another question sort of along those same lines is we tend to find that there are a number of potential mentees, whether they be students or residents, who, for lack of a better word, tend to sort of brown nose. Um, and so it's this perhaps uh, false sense of true interest and sometimes, it, for me, it can be a little bit hard to separate out from the truly uh, interested, for the person who's truly trying to better themselves. Do you have a way, do you have a litmus test that you can use to, to separate those, those people out? It's probably like asking uh, uh, Springer Spaniel how he knows when he's found a pheasant. <laughs> yeah. I am not so sure that it's easy always, but I... I think I'm a fairly keen observation of the medical students. It just happened this year that this doctor's son from the Bay Area came through, and they have these things now where the medical students will just rotate like three days a week, and then they'll go with other people, and he'll come back repeatedly. And then I heard during the final residency interviews for this kid at UCSD that it turned out that he was not on the high, highest list because he, he had these tremendous credentials. But I sensed within the first 15 minutes of talking with him that he was trying to impress me. So the last thing in the world a smart resident would do, or smart medical student, would be try to impress you. And I tell, I tell medical students when they rotate, be cautious, because this sycophant sort of thing, it's very hard for people to hide it. I think extremely hard for them to hide it from me. But it does happen. And so you just have to be aware that some have been taught since grade school with mother sitting down every day and telling you how you deal with each type of personality. The mother probably could get a CV about Nicholas Fletcher and about Rhode Island and give them talking points so that they could talk with them about it at the scrub sink. But yes, it's an issue. You have to have the nose for it. 
and you have to discriminate against it when you see it happening. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's very sage advice. Um, I want to move on to another area, I guess, within the, the uh, world of mentorship, if you will, that is, I know something you're incredibly passionate about, and that's uh, conferences. And uh, for those who have not had the opportunity to interview at Rady, I, I did. And uh, I was there on a Friday, I believe, which is your post-operative, con- no, it, it had to be a Monday because it was after the weekend. And there was a tremendous amount of uh, uh, discussion, uh, some of it critical, but all of it incredibly useful on proper cast placement. And despite the fact that I trained at what I would consider an excellent institution, we, I'd never seen anything that in depth, uh, related to something that probably should be at the, I know that you've got strong opinions about that as well, but should be at the, the, the heart of, of something that all orthopedic residents uh, can do. Um, and I also trained, as you know, in Dallas, and their conference schedule or conference process was a little bit different. So the, I guess the question for you, obviously, you have a lot of different types of, of, of conferences. What do you think, uh, looking back at your career as somebody who, who created this process, is the perfect conference schedule for a children's orthopedist trainee? How do you balance the different didactics, the modern learning styles, case review, and then maintain what you call as a dynamic tension that you value so much in conferences? <clears throat> well, just first of all, dynamic tension is someone that I, something, a term that I adopted after training with Ben Eisman, who was the chief of surgery at the Denver General Hospital. He lived almost to be 100. They had a wonderful memorial service for him about 10 years ago. And basically, dynamic tension is someone who is a leader who is Machiavellian, which says that leadership is half respect and half intimidation. And so you have to have full attention of every trainee. You need to know which row they're sitting in and how senior they are, when to ask the questions for the interns, when to pass it on to the resident, when they pass it on to the senior staff, and not get bogged down on long lists and differential diagnoses, et cetera. And the residents know that they need to read and be prepared. And I tell them not only to read about the cases they're going to present, but to just quickly look over the surgical list, because they might be called on for something that Newton's going to be doing or the foot surgeon's going to be doing, so that they're fully prepared. It means they have to spend most of Sunday getting ready for that Monday morning. And they know that I would call on them. I never make fun of them. You sort of laugh at them. And then you go back to the next row. You make a little joke about, well, I must have been too busy or something or other, or on holiday, or yeah, I realized the chargers were on last night. So it's always done in a humorous way, but done in a way that no one wants to be embarrassed in public. And I think that can be done tastefully. It requires a lot of training and, and thinking. And what else did you, oh, the balance of, of, of conferences then. You know, yeah. we have a Monday and Friday morning conference where we, Monday more or less tells what's going to be done that week. And then Friday will tell you what we did that week. And so then you have kind of a joking, because during that, and the, and the conferences are very democratic, because many of the staff have different ideas, and if they trained in Boston versus elsewhere, they may do something different. We want to be sure we have time for discussion among the staff, and then we don't know for sure whether the suggestions by the staff might be applied or maybe something different would be. And then on Friday morning, we jokingly say, so does this guy listen to it? Or is he a stubborn guy like most orthopedic surgeons? And so it gives the, the process of thought, the recognition that not everything is done the same. 
Every case that our residents present formally for surgery, they also look up the literature and they bring a single paper, which they have 30 seconds to tell us about, that applies to their case. It could be from Melbourne, it could be from anywhere in the world in any journal. We make them put up on the corner of their little mini dictation after their case what journal it is from, what its circulation, what's, that, what's the in impact factor, the impact factor, mm -hmm. the circulation, the institution, who the surgeons were. We're trying to train our residents to understand that the literature is very varied. And this whole idea of fake news is now so important in fake medical research and publications. Yeah. You got to know which company. What continent are they based on? When were they bought out by Europe? When were they bought out from India? You've got to know where it's coming from, what the impact factor is. So we teach them how to think, how to gather information, how to always be prepared. And I guess I get around to what someone told me about 30 years ago. They said no one in the capitalist system makes more than $100,000 unless they are driven, seeking information for the rest of their life. Whether you're training for Goldman Sachs or to be an orthopedic surgeon in Atlanta. There's a lot of time and dedication and training, and you're entering a field that will require that, and we want to teach you how to think and to continue to use that model for the rest of your life. And uh, that's, that's all terrific. How, how has that changed? I mean, because nowadays I feel like our ability to pressure uh, residents is different. I trained under Neil Green uh, briefly, but he was obviously, I think, of a of a uh, older breed, if you will, uh, and we and we had a very similar conference, I think, to what you're describing, where we came in and he had all the questions already set, and you could almost, if you were there uh, multiple years, you would actually know which question was coming because you would all take notes not only on what the topic was, but what the order of the questions was uh, was going to be. But then the the second year resident who hadn't been through that process yet was a little bit in the firing range. Um, and so I'm curious how that has changed because our, our conferences now don't have the same tension that you're describing, and, and I love it. I mean, I, I think it's a great thing. Well, we're going through now, as I pass this on to Salil Upasani, who is um, our, in charge of our fellowship now, um, regarding who of our 10 staff should be leading the conference and who has the self-confidence or the education to ask the hard questions? Because the person running that conference, he can't be watching Sportnet the night before. He's got to run, he's got to read even slightly more or have slightly more experience than anyone who's going to be answering them in the morning. So only selected people should run the conferences. And your people can get together and vote on who those are. But when you're just out of training, you really wouldn't be able to do that. There's a distinct disadvantage in the current generation who may not have done a broad general children's orthopedic practice as they evolved into specialization. So that's going to prove to be a bit of a problem in the future. But I think it's related to the chief of the program and his dedication to making, to making high demands. And that even gets around to casting, which you mentioned earlier. You know, in our conferences, we go over all our fracture cases the week then for Friday morning as well. And we closely apply that old axiom, I forget where it came from. You will know an orthopedic surgeon and wh how skilled he is by seeing the casts that he puts on. And yep. it is remarkable how by our critically looking at the, the fiberglass and how it's molded and what its AP ratio is in the wrist, et cetera, we're almost looking at that more than we are at the fracture reduction. And we comment on it every day. And we see residents who come who hardly know anything about it, and they do a little rotation in our cast room to learn. 
and they pick it up, and soon they're pretty good. So we're very proud to say when you go to a Walmart or Costco in San Diego, California, the cast on children appear to be better shaped than any other city in the country. <laughs> I love that. I assume that when you shop, you look at other people's casts. Oh, yeah. Yep. Cast, limp, cur- uh, spinal curve. Uh, it's, uh, I think that this and, profession... And their diagnosis, their, di- their neuromuscular absolutely. diagnosis, trying to determine between an early um, a di- a dis- ataxia sort of gait, or neuropathy, an early neuropathy versus mild polio 30 years ago. My wife is a little puzzled when I get into that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've tried to pick up Duchenne's numerous times uh, at, at sporting events and parks. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned, I want to sort of move into career transition, was that a young surgeon should be a busy surgeon. And I cannot agree with this more uh, because of the fact that that was, uh, I guess, uh, because of the fact that's what happened to me. I, I walked into a practice where my partner, who's a uh, wonderful clinician and well-respected within our city, was way more busy than he could handle. And so I became instantly busy as well. But I've noticed that a lot of the trainees who've come out in the interim time are facing a different reality, which is that PEDS is much more popular and they want to do something very specific. They want to do spine or they want to do sports. And they are all of a sudden competing not only against senior children's orthopedists in their own practice, but a larger population of children's orthopedists within their community. And so they are willing to go and be less busy because it's a it's the place that they wanted to go or their spouse wanted to go, but also because they are going to um, create, uh, create something of their liking rather than sort of seeing which waves the waves take them. And I'm curious how you educate your residents and fellows who are going off into uh, their, the, the real world um, with regards to being sort of a small fish in a big pond or a big fi- fish in a small pond? Yeah. Well, I have you know, a fair number of thoughts about the number of children's orthopedists that are being trained and how many are going to be children's orthopedists of the British Children's Orthopedic Society. They, along with me, along with Mercer Rang, hate pediatric orthopedics because it's redundant. But pediatrics is care of children, and care of children for care of children is a little excessive. But in countries like the Great, Brit- Great Britain and many other areas, there are only a modest number of children's orthopedists for the whole country. And they're all quite expert and have a huge experience in every area. We've created a very large number of children's orthopedists, and not everyone is going to be able to have a practice that may be of the breadth or the type that they want. But getting back to where you go into practice... And, you know, you have to benefit by the mistakes you've made in your life. And I had lived in Denver and loved Denver, Colorado, and loved the snow. Fortunately, we didn't have so many fires then. And so after my training, I decided to go back there and work for a year, a year and a half at the University of Colorado. But I found that it was picking the wrong place, the wrong hospital. I was not busy enough. And as I said in that note, this pediatric general surgeon walked into me one day in the locker room and said, Dennis, are you really busy? I said, well, sort of, but not as busy as I would like to be. And I had just left Toronto, which is the busiest and biggest children's orthopedic service in the world at that time. And he said, a young surgeon should be a busy surgeon. So my error was thinking you should go where you want to live. We tell our trainees, you should decide, do you want to be a great orthopedic surgeon, both adult specialties and children, Or do you want to have a really nice lifestyle and be sure you get uh, season tickets for the new SoFi Stadium and fish and go to the mountains a lot? You probably, early in your career, 
are going to make decisions that would determine whether that's possible. You, have to, you should go where you have a fairly large practice early on. You've got to get experience. And I think there are many, many surgeons who never become really good surgeons that you want to send your relatives to because they started their practice in the wrong place and thought that lifestyle was more important than implementing this thing that you spent, what, 20 years of your life learning to be. And to get that education and not use it is a travesty. Now, very bright, very crafty people can move to Santa Monica, California, and can get a job in a very crowded area, and through their skills, can still get there and be very good, but it's quite rare. And it's very common throughout this country to have in beautiful cities sort of halfway busy people in all these specialties who you would not send your relative to because they're not doing enough of those shoulder scope repairs per week to get good, a la Malcolm Gladwell, whatever he had said about mm -hmm. frequency. So you tell them. That's all you can do is tell them. Do you want to be really good at your specialty? Or do you want to just sort of be a so-so guy? Or gal? Now, along those lines, um, I think that there have been changes in how surgeons expand their surgical skills. Um, when I was coming through, this was done, and, and you mentioned this about uh, surgical techniques being posted on the wall in the operating room, but I read Tagens, and I was trained, as I mentioned, in Dallas. So that was that was given to us at the start, or uh, Level and Winter. And I used Hoppenfeld's Surgical Atlas for my exposures. Now all of this is done by video, or at least that seems to be what it's done uh, by in Atlanta. Um, and I'm curious on your thoughts for surgeons who are coming out, surgeons who are in training. How does the How does this paradigm shift impact the ability of our trainees and young surgeons to sort of accomplish the goals and but still understand the principles of surgery. Well, I don't think it's as as efficient. And the the residents who come on my service to the clinics, I said, if you really want to learn optimally from me, I want you to buy a new or used Rang Children's Fractures, which mm -hmm. we're now writing now, and Lynn Staley's book about children's orthopedics. I want you to bring it to clinic. And, when, and every so often on a third or fourth patient, they say, okay, now tell me about osgood Slaughter's disease. What does Staley say? And I make them open it up and we look at it. I, there's a lot of research about learning from the glass and learning from paper. And you're probably aware of some of it. Mm -hmm. You know, Princeton University or one of the Eastern universities has the highest percentage of people who use only computers to study and remember. UCLA, amazingly. West Coast, trendy, Hollywood, center of computers, has the highest percentage of learning from paper. And it is more efficient learning of how you train your brain. And if you're drawing on the side of that book, making your drawings, using your underlines, etc., it's been shown that the way that information is taken in, if it goes through your hand and goes through your brain in a way that you can visualize, that your memory is greater for it. So I think that the people who do it only on glass are going to have a hard time absorbing and keeping a lot of information. And I think everyone who finishes training should have a stack of books that you can go back to when you train for your boards and you go through the shoulder section or you go through the innervation to the muscles and or their blood supply, et cetera. And I, I find them not as well trained. So you probably need 10 more IQ points to be a totally glass-trained person. <laughs> now it's harder to recall. 
with with I think one of the things that I've found uh, does seem to help with trainees that I did not have, at least not to the extent that we do now. And actually, your center has been, I think, recently much more uh, forward thinking on this, especially Salil, who you mentioned, what is the concept of using 3D modeling and 3D uh, physical models as well as as uh, recreations to help plan surgery. Personally, I feel that this is a, a great step in the right direction, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and how perhaps you use this uh, in your practice, but also how you see this moving in the future. Well, I think it's a tremendous advance. You know, I would say the b- very beginning of my understanding of having a model was learning fracture treatment at the University of Iowa, which is right out of Vienna from Arthur Steindler on to Ponsetti, who was my mentor there. And treating most fractures close. You may not know it, but Ivy Pansetti traveled within his wallet a sheet of paper because he traveled a fair amount around the world. If I should have a, a fracture of any type, do not put an implant in me. Arrange for my transfer back to the University of Iowa where I will be treated in traction. He was that opposed to internal fixation. So we didn't do much uh, surgery for fractures when I was in Iowa. Then when I, Toronto, there was some, you know, children don't have as many open fractures. Then I got to Dallas, and AO had arrived in Dallas. In fact, it arrived there during the time I was there. And we suddenly started opening more fractures. And you talk about periosteal entrapment and proximal tibia valgus and a Cosin's fracture, et cetera. If you've never actually opened the door and been in there and seen it, it's hard to remember. So my first 3D training was actually opening a distal tibial triplane fracture rather than <laughs> treating it with a cast and actually see what's going on in there. And so 3D, yes, it's extremely important to have been there and to have seen it. And I think the modeling is a tremendously wonderful thing for spine, for hip, and I'm sure in many other areas. And it's, it's an area where science has really made our job easier. That's great. Well, I want to transition a little bit more into your own career. Um, and in particular, you mentioned that you started out, uh, as have I, uh, as more of a generalist. And then over time, clearly, you know, you developed a specialty interest in HIP. But it's fascinating going back through your lineage of, of uh, articles that the volume of work that you did and scoliosis, which I knew of. I mean, I remember you giving the uh, a, the keynote speech at the SRS a few years ago, I believe that was the 50th anniversary, um, despite the fact that I, I assume it's been, you know, many years, maybe even more than a decade since you've taken care of scoliosis. How did you manage that change? Um, Why did you stop caring for spine? Um, and how did you end up focusing more on hip in the end? Yeah. Well, first I trained in Toronto. And even then, uh, in the 70s, Toronto had subspecialization in children's orthopedics, like neuromuscular was done by Norris Carroll, and Bob Gillespie and Babechko and a few others um, did spine, Salter did hips. And so a few, few people then only, you know, were already subspecializing, but I luckily took training with a guy named Walter Babechko, because in that time, if you went to Toronto, you were assigned to one staff for your entire year. Oh, wow. And if you had a good one, it was an extraordinary thing because Wabetchko had 80 patient clinics every Monday and Friday. They had a public clinic and private clinics. Tremendous operator, did every area, scoliosis, um, hips, etc. So I was exposed to do everything. And in a period when there weren't that many children's orthopedists, once I started practice, obviously the number one thing that I wanted to do was to do scoliosis. 
which I knew how to do really well because we got to help and assist and do a lot of the case in Toronto. So I was very good at scoliosis surgery and wanted to do a lot. And that's one of the reasons I left Denver to go to Dallas because they had a big waiting list of patients that needed someone to come in and put rods in their spine. We then started a spine instrumentation lab in Dallas. I was the first to go into helping to study on animal models, the LUCA, which is segmental spinal instrumentation, and getting moving toward the CD. And so it was my major field of interest and area of lecture for the first 10 years of my life. Luckily, I learned in Toronto how to do hip surgery in children because they did a lot of it there, especially DDH in older children. And I, I didn't have very much of that in Colorado. There were too many well-educated families and DDH didn't get missed. If you want to be really good in DDH, you want to live near an area where they have no screening and the cases are, <laughs> are, are not seen. And now in Sweden, it's very hard to find someone who's even done a hip operation. So I then applied that knowledge and then I lived in uh, Dallas for seven years at the Scottish Rite Hospital and then here for 30 years near the Mexican border with a special subgroup of patients who didn't, unfortunately didn't have ideal early pediatric care. So I then moved toward getting expert in hips. And I would say at about age 60, I started to begin to feel the movement. We trained Peter Newton as a resident. We knew he was a brilliant, going to be a brilliant surgeon. Uh, when he went to Scottish Rite Hospital, Tony Herring told me that he scrubbed with him, in with him on a spine, and the, fir the first day he arrived, he could tell that Peter was already better than the fellow who had just finished his year of fellowship the day before. <laughs> and so we were able to bring him back after his training, and he has sort of dedicated his career to sort of try to become technically a super expert surgeon, but also be good in research. So once he came on board... And we knew how good he was. And as spine surgery started becoming more complicated, as I think Perry Schenecker, uh, it might have been mentioned about Perry Schenecker in your interview that mm -hmm. you did with, um, who, who did you do the interview with from St. Louis Wash U? Uh, well, I did, I did one with John, uh, but I didn't, but nobody from St. Louis so far. Well, no, he's at New York now. Though. I'm, I'm blocking on the spine. Um, Mike Vitale? No who worked with Bridwell in St. Louis. You, you did your interview with him recently. Oh, Larry, Lenke. Yeah, Lenke. Yes. Yeah, it was mentioned in that interview that um, Schenecker, Perry Schenecker, at, the, at a certain point felt that spine was getting more complicated. And I think I was willing to move away when I realized that you should achieve the goal. Your child or your resident or fellow should be even better than you at it. And we thought Peter <laughs> Newton was ideally trained for it. It was getting more complicated, and I was about 60 and getting a little tired about long operations. But I'll say the, the biggest thing that told me I should start to move away from it is that with the modern way of, of doing scoliosis surgery, it increased the time by at least an hour to put in the pedicle schools, to do all the neural testing and all this sort of thing. And I was trained in a center that if you did a scoliosis operation, if it was more than an hour and 45 minutes, you must not know how to do it. <laughs> and so once you're efficient... And moving at that speed, it's a little bit hard to go slow. Now, with enough large practice, you can do the, everything that needs to be done now. So it was beginning to not fit a slightly impatient person. <laughs> and we had new people in our group that seemed to be good at it, so we slowly stepped back. That's interesting. And, and, and stepped more, more forefront into the management of the hip. And you've obviously, you know, you recruited Salil back, who uh, uh, has an interest both in spine and in hip. But I think, uh, you know, I, I think of him probably first and foremost for a lot of his, his hip research. 
where do you think the future of pediatric hip care is at your center? Um, and I, I guess more generally, do you think that the major complications that come from early surgery, for example, for DDH or for Skiffy, can truly be minimized uh, in the future? I mean, I, I don't know how, I'd have to admit, I don't know the, the percentages of, for example, of AVN or residual dysplasia on cases that were done in the early 80s versus now, but I feel like we've, we've haven't really dropped those numbers. I'm sort of curious your thoughts on the future of hip surgery. Well, I, it gets back to um, the idea of our having children's orthopedics be a massive organization with massive numbers of people trained to do it. And they may all be able to master fracture care, but once you get into subspecialization in the harder specialties, it's harder for them to do and they don't have the frequency of cases. So I believe, as someone once said, nothing changes in America till the lawyers decide to change it. I think there's going to have to be a narrowing down of what centers have treatment for hip disease, et cetera, because it's a, it's a bit complicated to do any open reduction. You know, many, many people wouldn't know how to do a Ludloff procedure safely and put them in a hip spike afterwards. Anterior open reduction in a young child, it's a demanding operation. You have to have had excellent training. It's almost as hard as doing a spine and not having any troubles. And so I see a, a, a coming sort of division of children's orthopedists who are broad generalists, but who will not want to take on spines, hips, advanced hips, etc. Even doing having a good pavlic harness clinic You've got to do quite a few of them and have nurses who know how to adjust them and nurses to take the telephone calls of families who are concerned if you want to do it really well. And so I see operative treatment of narrowing down under these quality assurance committees that the Academy and Kevin Shea have to look in POSNA, to look and see you know, what the complications are depending on frequency, et cetera. I could visualize a, a time when an open reduction of a hip in a child in Southern California were only done in three places. Kaiser does this quite well. You know, if you have a big hip problem, the Kaiser system is powerful and well organized in California and maybe the future of how American medical care is going to be delivered. You know, you go to the hospital that does their um, PAOs and impingement type of surgery. You know, just a few people do them all. And I think it's, we have to move toward that if we want to have quality. Similar to the European model, where they have the hip team and the spine team. And, and, and it's self-evident. I mean, we, we, um, we had one of our fellows who was from Vancouver, Dr. Miyanji, wonderful, wonderful guy. You know, he's known now mainly for his spine surgery, but he did a spine fellowship in Canada, in Toronto with the neurosurgeons, and then with us, and then went to Vancouver. And he, he very early on said this idea of a child from zero to 18 a children's orthopedist treating all his conditions is going to go by the wayside because the sophisticated parents know that you've got to be a person that does high volume and even sports medicine and teenagers. You know, they won't go to just see anyone. They're going to want to go to someone that trained at Vail and that's all they do. So as you get more consumers, the consumers and the lawyers will drive it. Hmm. Well, speaking of uh, spine, you know, spine obviously from a technological standpoint has had some impressive uh, advances over the past couple of decades. And hip in particular really hasn't. I think that some of the more recent uh, three-dimensional imaging has been a big step in the right direction. 
why do you think that 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 divi- divide is there? Um, do you think it's the the finance associated with spine? Do you think it's just the lack of implants uh, in most hip surgeries? What what divide are you talking about? The the divide in terms of leaps and bounds and sort of changes of technologies that have advanced spine care versus hip care. Um, I feel like a lot of the hip care that we provide now, um, maybe with the advance of of the young adult is similar from a technologic standpoint in terms of the diagnosis and the treatment to probably the way it was 20, 25 years ago. Um, whereas, you know, 25 years ago, you were putting in Lukey wires and hooks in a spine and, and now it's all thoracic pedicle screws and they're done with a robot and, you know, this and that. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts on where that divide has occurred? Well, yes, having complex instrumentation requiring complex instrumentation and then having it made by a variety of companies and being internationally competitive for dollars and big big corporate dollars to put into research to determine yeah it, it certainly has driven that and you know when you read about tiger woods and his inability to play and then this nuvasive anterior approach to put a little disc, disc spacer in just slide in beside the kidney in the retroperitoneal area and fix him up and now he's back winning the masters i mean these are brilliant brilliant advances and they are complicated. And when you talk about the spine world, you're also talking about all adult and all children. You know, the advanced techniques are used just as much in the de- uh, degenerative spine and the Tiger Woods spines as they are in young people. And so there's big money behind it. Children's orthopedics and the complex problems with very little metal implants, that may be a factor, that there are not enough dollars going into studying it because it's For the culture as a whole, it's kind of a small potatoes issue. We can't afford to get to spend huge amounts of dollars. And sometimes we forget in children's orthopedics how small we are as a percentage of the disease burden for the United States or the world. And so the big dollars and the big attention is going to go to areas that matter the most. And the, the cost to the culture of a child getting AVN of their hip because they had a slightly clumsy surgeon at age two aren't so great. So I hadn't thought a lot about it, but I think the amount of money spent by instrument companies to assist research is, is an issue in between the two. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'm, I'm sort of curious. You, you mentioned about the, uh, some of the challenges with generalization of pediatrics as a whole. Um, you and I have talked, you may not uh, remember it as a few years back, about sort of a, a the relative increase in pediatric orthopedic specialists, or a speci- uh, pediatric orthopedics is especially. Um, when I came through, I think that there were 21 fellows the year before, which would have been John Scheneker's year. I want to say there were 11, and now there are about 50 every year. Why do you think PEDS has become so popular? Um, and what does it offer for the young surgeon that maybe other areas of orthopedics doesn't? Well, I think people see it as a happy specialty, and I think they see it as you know, something where your personality, your caring for patients, opportunities to take care of a lot of people of multiple social classes is good. I think as we have an increasing percentage of females coming into children's orthopedics or into orthopedic surgery, they see this as someone, some, something that fits with their more compassionate uh, social way of dealing with disease. So I think it offers a sort of a satisfactory, non-threatening way to be in the complex area of medicine and where your caring and interest and love for your patients 
you already know you're not going to make very much money compared to some other specialties. And I think it draws a type of person who say, I can be an orthopedic surgeon in a low-key sort of non-competitive way. Interesting. One of the challenges, though, is the, the complexity, uh, you know, if you look at the breadth of the specialty. And I remember Neil Green said to John Scheneker that he finally figured peds out when he turned 62. Did you feel this way? Do you think that there is a challenge with the lack of mastery, um, you know, looking at it? Because I think that's that's somewhat daunting. I've talked to to some of our residents and they, you know, readily admit, you know, I'm going to joints because I want to get very good at doing one thing. And that way I can perfect that. And it's a little bit less stress on me uh, as a whole. Yes, I think that is true. And I think maybe up until this point, not being terribly good in every area, but just being sort of a little above average, uh, it was easier in children's orthopedics. And their errors are a little bit less noticeable. You didn't need to be super skilled and you could still cover a lot of areas without getting in trouble. I think that is going to change when these, initi these initiatives that are coming about saf uh, safety, value, etc. So it is difficult. Uh, you may not remember it, but about 25 years ago, Henry Mankin, the brilliant professor mm -hmm. at Harvard, uh, started a movement toward two-year orthopedic residencies in America, or this is general orthopedics, and then follow, and those people should go into practice and take care of people, mainly office care, do shots, et cetera. There's much of this that's true in Europe just now. You know, if you're an orthopedist in Europe, you don't do any surgery. If you're an orthopedic surgeon, you do operations, and they determine these long German residencies which track you're going to be in. And so that never happened, and Henry Mankin was thought to be a little bit off the wall. So he said then following that, a few orthopedic surgeons would take these special training things in the complex fields, and they would do the rest of it. I think children's orthopedics may have to move toward this as science becomes more demanding of having perfect outcomes from surgery. And I think we see it a little bit. It's happening before our eyes in Posner. When you look out over the audience of 800, and you realize about 150 of them may eventually sort of operate at the medical school training level and will be the, doing the most advanced cases and people refer to them. And then there's another 600 of them that just have an enjoyable practice but aren't super specialized. But then where you really see it coming is the next two or 300 are the nurse practitioners and PAs. And Kaiser has known this long ago. You know, what's, what certificate do you need to treat a disease? MD, PA, and with computers, et cetera, it's going to blend this. So I think children's orthopedics is going to move toward a segment that broadly does everything but doesn't try to do the complicated cases and both sort of by rules. Who knows? Maybe Kevin Shea rules, government <laughs> rules. He won't like it if I called him the government. But Posner's getting into this, and it's going to be a rocky road once Posner has to help decide which centers should be the ones that do the advanced training and which of the 650 out of 800 to do just the basic stuff. But I think it will evolve, and we're among the last, and possibly because having a nice personality and a broad understanding of patients and parents who do not understand if that sports medicine thing would have been done in Vail, their child would be back on the team and going to college playing this sport, and because they did it at their local hospital, he's going to be uh, doing mainly chess. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, I think, you know, one of the other challenges with our specialty uh, that that gets brought up a lot to me, and I've, I've heard this, I think, especially sort of in the spine world, is the impact of the complications because of the, pa- the fact that patients have a longer life expectancy that they have to deal with a complication. I'm curious how you manage complications. I've tried to ask this of, uh, of my other guests, and I, I always find it really interesting. Um, and then how you coach or mentor your trainees on, on dealing with complications in children. Yeah. Well, I, um, everyone has had them, as you said. And I heard in another interview someone talking about how they managed their first paraplegia. And when, someone, when, I, when I see middle-aged scoliosis surgeons and I talk with them about how they manage their first one, and they say, well, I've never had any. And then I said, oh, I see. You must not have been doing very interesting mm-hmm. surgery. Because if you do osteotomies and very severe things, you will have these troubles. Uh, first of all, you can read the rules, have the books, follow everything. Once you get one, you should realize that you are not a rational person to make the decision. You are emotionally involved. Your mind is slightly crazy, and you're not able to think clearly. So you talk with someone in your group or in the country. You can't even be in the OR, calling from the OR to somewhere else in the country, to someone who you trust and say, this is a circumstance. The signals are here. The blood pressure is this. This is this. What do you think I should do? Because you will not think well. I remember a, a neurologic issue we had when they first came in doing epidurals for um, scoliosis surgery in a patient who had problems during the night and the next morning. And the parents, th- this child was then put on high doses of steroids be, be, to help them recover from this partial neural loss, which eventually recovered. And the child became schizophrenic and crazy, went wild in front of the parents. So we had a doctor whose patient had a neurologic deficit, the parents who were in a crazed, hypermanic state. And then you realize, hey, my mind is the same as theirs. You have to discuss this with your colleagues. So I was a parallel with Scott Maberic, and we had a pack set up. If we ever had any major complication, we would immediately talk with that person. Compartment syndrome or whatever it is, don't try to make the decision on your own. The other thing that I've learned over time is that if you think maybe you should go back to the OR, you think maybe you should take these rods out, or you think maybe you should go in and look at this thing again, maybe the abscess is reaccumulated in some, in fact, you should do it. And I think the first time when you think, I'm going to have to tell this patient, this family, somewhat difficult family, that we're going back to surgery, something has happened. That to you, it's devastating because you've never done it before. But actually, parents understand this. They sort of watch TV, and they sort of know that the patient may, can have a complication, the surgeon may do that. So the parents, in a way, are much more accepting that you have to go back and start over than you think. So don't be afraid to reoperate. And if you think maybe you should be going back, do it. Uh, I guess those are two of the major things I would say. Yeah, that second point, I mean, those are both phenomenal. And that second point is so critical. And I can distinctly recall a case where I didn't. And I mean, I still think about, about it that I wish I had. And um, and I, I feel as though a lot of the time it's our ego that that you're right, that, that prevents you from wanting to have that discussion, but, but that parents just want what's best for their kid. And if you say this is best, what's best for the child, then, uh, then they're you know, completely on board. So I think that's really, really wonderful advice. And the question is what your ego is. And that's probably where we have a little downfall in 
training with perfectionist surgeons and superstars and people you think you don't have complications, you somehow think you have failed. And so I think that understanding, and you know, someone probably someday will write a book, or there probably is one, about the psychology of having a complication. Because I think in your deep Freudian subconscious brain, you're thinking Ponsetti in his grave is wondering, and Salter is wondering, and all these things are wondering how their trainee could be so stupid to have this outcome. And somehow, not your ego is involved, but kind of knowing why, and to realize, and, but most importantly, you don't make the decision yourself. You talk to someone who is rational, and that's anybody other than you, the surgeon who is responsible for the care. You will not be entirely responsible. All the logic you learned in undergraduate school and using your brain that you thought was better in biology than math all goes out the field when you think this patient's not going to walk for the rest of their life, and it was you that caused it. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, that's very true. Um, uh, I'm curious, uh, I want to, and this sort of t is based on what you just mentioned, um, and I wanted to talk to you about it, is, is this accumulation of knowledge um, and how you've gone about it. You, as, as far as I've uh, heard, are a voracious reader. Um, and, uh, you know, is this something that has always been there that, that you started off with from a young age? I've heard that you have a daily, sort of a daily reading schedule where you read newspapers before you come to work almost in, in uh, their entirety. Um, and how you go about managing knowledge accumulation in modern times with technology? Yeah. Well, I would say, luckily, I grew up in a household that had neither radios nor television. But we did get a newspaper. And we're involved now in writing a history of our family, uh, of how we all evolved, et cetera. And one of the little notes that came back from one of my siblings that they remember at 10 o'clock at night, after all of our 11 children were tucked in bed in their crowded little places in our house, that our mom would never go to sleep until she finished reading the paper. So I, as a kid, that was the only source of information I had until, uh, you know, of course, school things came home. And so everyone in our household read the newspaper cover to cover every comic, every little quiz, whatever, because that's all we had. So I learned early on that uh, reading was enjoyable. You can go at your own pace. Some people like podcasts. But I can do a, the, what I, you might get in a 25-minute podcast in about six minutes if I'm reading, because I know how to skim, speed read, go slower, fast. And, so, and, and then, unfortunately, in this educational world, I hate to say it, this thing of knowledge is power, because so, power sounds evil. But knowing what is going on in your specialty is really, really important in keeping up on it and keeping up until, until you retire. Um, switching to computerized learning, I like to mark my books when I read them. I just ordered two books yesterday on Amazon. And so I circle it, add notes, put in the corner. This reminds me of Nick Fletcher when they're talking about a character. If someone else reads my book after I've read it, they can do the whole thing in about 10 minutes and learn all the points that are in it. So I still learn. I read a lot of newspapers, but I have, it's a two-step process. I do still get them all in paper. And, you know, I have the Wall Street Journal also on glass. I can get it, but, you know, they're not quite as complete. There's a lot of ads. I can't scan and decide what Kimberly Strassel is saying versus someone else. So in the morning I read them, standing up, drinking my coffee, 5.45, I'm quickly looking through the four newspapers that I got. Then that evening, I will go through them in some detail. So that's how I get my general information. I also read all of the book reviews in both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And these guide you toward what books you should buy. 
Like just most recently, I told my wife, we have to get this book because I knew I would like it. And this is the story. It's called King of the World, The Life of Louis XIV by Philip Mansell. And it's about Europe and government and marrying into an Austrian family in France when it was at the leading part of the world. The other book that I saw a review about was Edward Snowden's autobiography about himself, you know, and security and military USA. So I read newspapers and I buy books or, or take books out from the library. I'm very, not terribly fond of novels because I think I have a pretty good imagination and a novel, to a sense, is someone with a, that has a lot of information about an era, and then they put their own imagination into think, to thinking, maybe this is what people were like at that time. And so I prefer, actually, a sort of historical descriptions of people, and like Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs, wow. Yeah, that's a phenomenal one. Um, th- have you found with your – I'm, I'm curious that you still get four newspapers. I guess one of the challenges that – for example, my kids have when, when we talk about reading is the volume of sources. Have these newspapers stayed more or less the same since, you know, for the past 10, 20 years? They probably have. And, you know, one doesn't need four newspapers. I think everyone has to read the Wall Street Journal and their local newspaper if they want to really be informed. I always say when I get to the hospital, I want to know if the CEO has been fired. <laughs> and I would likely learn that from the morning paper. Um, I tend to get a San Diego paper and an LA paper because you have to know what's going on in your town. And if you live in California, the Los Angeles paper, you know, it covers all of Mexico, all of Central America, all the West Coast. It really, really helps you know, but you don't need to have that many. Um, the volume, the size of the papers has probably gotten smaller. I'm a tremendous scanner, and that's one reason I have trouble with computerized reading is that the articles that are really going to interest me, I don't know about when I open this paper. And I scan right. it, and I quickly look through, and I see, wow, this is about pheasant ratings in North, in North Dakota and how the bacteria affecting the pheasants may be affecting the cost of the healthcare system. Hey, you come across it. I know you can come across it on the computer, and I do scan the computer news, but it doesn't seem as complete to me. I don't know how to get your children to – well, first of all, you have to talk about curiosity. Curiosity and a need to know a lot, in my view, is – somewhat genetic. I have four children, and they each have a varying degrees of curiosity. And you can try to teach it. And I just, I think I heard something uh, on that Noelle Larson thing you did. I listened to that one about her and the curiosity that her parents passed on to her and that they're now passing on to their grandchildren. So curiosity yeah. is there. My children don't read all these papers. You have one or two of them enjoy reading parts of them. And so there is a different way of learning now I would say thus far, I do not see much competition in the knowledge accumulation between voracious leaders, readers and people who don't read printed material. I'm afraid the non-printed material people are still behind. And, and I'm, I'm sort of curious, just looking at it from a, a pure completion of task, how did you how did you read that much uh, regarding your local? I, I, so I, I love newspapers. I don't actually get Wall Street Journal, but I try to read it uh, every day, and uh, and to some extent the AJC, which is our our local paper. But um, uh, but keeping up with uh, the academic work that's out there. I mean, you, I'm sure you are. Uh, <laughs> you know all about uh, the history of Posna, and you know all about the. Uh, uh, the history of, of the surgeries that you're doing. How do you? How did you find time for all that? 
Well, I would say it was a very important part of the University of Iowa training program. You know, we had tremendous conferences and we had staff from all over the world. And we always had visiting professors because it was a very famous program. We always had visiting professors from out of the country, from the UK. And, you know, getting to hear these classic educators from the United Kingdom brought by Adrian Platt and others. And you soon realize that this is the most, perhaps the most interesting part of orthopedics to know something about the other people and how they thought and how these, these things evolved. And so it was just sort of put in my mind. And I don't know if you're aware, but the um, in-service exam about 20 years ago started putting questions in about cities and which city were this person from? They would have putty plat or something of this sort. They'd have little questions. They gave up rather quickly. But I think in a classic orthopedic education system, you're teaching people where ideas came from. Like I always at a conference, never does someone get to say, we did a modified Bristol without me asking what was it before it was modified and who modified it. <laughs> yeah. A resident wouldn't even consider using that word in my conference, knowing as you said, you knew what Neil Green was going to ask you. Yeah. So was it modified correctly? Are there some people in the world still doing a non-modified one? And so in Iowa, I think we were trained to think globally and know the characters. And I think the East Coast may be a little better than the West. I don't know regarding knowing who's in New York, who's in Boston, who's at the Mayo Clinic, who's doing what. I've always been tremendously interested in sort of the political PR nature of the leaders. Anytime any new implant comes, I, and I'll ask the guys selling them. I'll say, okay, who's getting the money on this thing? In other <laughs> words, what are the surgeon brains behind this? It's remarkable how often they don't know. And I think possibly the companies hide it from them because they're not sure these local sales reps will know how to manage the psychology of big fees going to inventor surgeons. But I, so I'm always interested in knowing the origin. And I think knowing the history allows you to have a more complete way of understanding your profession. Well, it sounds like your approach in many ways, I mean, and I, this is clearly true from having spoken to you and, and heard you speak before, is, uh, is a continuous accumulation of knowledge. For example, the, you know, always asking probing questions like, you know, who modified it? What was the modification? Uh, or well, to your point, who who created this? Who's getting paid for this? I think that that it's very easy for our current trainees to just take what's told to them and accept it. But that that concept of always asking for for clarification probably is how you can expand your knowledge the most uh, on a regular basis. If you can give me five seconds, I'm going to uncover this poster that I have here in my office and read it to you because it okay. leads to this. It takes one second to get this chair out of the way. Yep. Okay, I'm back now. Okay. And so I, I think it sort of summarizes what we've sort of been both been saying in the last few minutes. This is a nice picture of Albert Einstein. It's a full-size poster. I got it in a museum in Munich, Germany. He has him on a pipe with his sweater. It says, wisdom is not a product of schooling but of the lifelong attempt to acquire it. Yeah. A lifelong attempt to acquire knowledge. And I think it's something that should be taught. And if children aren't very curious, you can help them to realize the value of curiosity. But some of it is genetic. Yeah. And well, so, you, like Stuart Weinstein and I have very similar minds in this area, that how could we possibly want to do 
what we do without knowing what it was like and how it was done elsewhere. What, what are they likely doing in Vienna versus China? I always ask. So is it, where is this being treated in China? Do these people get these implants? Who makes it? How much does it cost? I think knowing those things makes your specialty interesting. Have you found that as you've sort of started to step back from your clinical practice that that's been a hard transition or does this continuous thirst for knowledge and, and uh, you know, continuously trying to accumulate knowledge make it so that it doesn't necessarily matter? At least, on a, I mean, I'm sure you miss, you know, the general day-to-day patient care, but the, the, the accumulation of knowledge is something that can continue to go on. Have you found that that's a difficult Thing or that you're still very comfortable since you're continuously learning? Yeah. Well, I think that you're, 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 when you accumulate knowledge, you're working in other areas as well. But I think in orthopedics, I'm probably, I'm, I still run, I'm running conferences and they rotate our mentoring. So I'm still running some of these conferences, et cetera. So I try to moderately keep up. I think to, to really be a leader in these things, you have to go to every po- po- uh, POSNA meeting, every IPOS meeting, you know, it really takes a tremendous amount of work to gather information and be up to date and soon sort of know more or less what everyone is thinking. So I'm not quite as state of the art as I was three years ago, but I'm very comfortable with it because there are other areas uh, where one c- can learn and expand their knowledge. Mine is now gardening and transplanting of euphorbia type of plants from South Africa. I have other areas of interest, but no, it's not at all stressful for me. I love seeing patients. And I have to just give one little thing that I sort of miss. In it. I, I teach the concept of improvisational theater. Have you gone to improvisational theater? I've not, but I know what you're ta- what you're referring to. Where you go in and you just throw out a topic. Yeah. And then someone else says something and then say, oh, yes. And then he went to Atlanta and he came across this guy was drinking too much who had lost his shoe. And then the next person has to follow. I say seeing, seeing a patient is a great joy for me. First of all, I never go in to see a patient on my own. I don't quite know how to do it. My spy goes in ahead, my spy being a medical student or a resident or a fellow, and he comes out and I say, give me the lay of the land. Am I going to like these people? What's their story? What do you think the problem is? And then I love to go in and sometimes find out that what that resident thought is exactly accurate and some, many times when they're junior, completely misunderstanding of what the parental concern is. He forgot to find out that the aunt just died of a tumor for two years ago, a bone tumor, and their child has a little lump on their bone, and he's told them, oh, this is something we don't even need to get an x-ray for. So I call it improvisational theater. Every time you go in to see a patient, you have no idea what you're going to think after you come out. And you're never, you have no idea what questions the family are going to ask. And if you can't think on your feet and give them the reassuring answer, Like when they'll say, is there any chance that this might be cancer? Your answer is absolutely no. And the residents say, well, aren't you lying to them? I said, no, you just don't understand what my no means. And so I really enjoy taking care of patients. I thought maybe I would miss it a lot, but I I don't seem to. And I think I worked long enough. You know, I sort of stepped back in my mid-70s now. And so I, and you get the sense that you know, there are other things that you should do. And you also know, I jokingly say this, I don't mean to, I don't mean to harm anyone, I know it should be in the air. I said, every once in a while in my speech now, I sound a little bit like Joe Biden. And then you realize, hmm, maybe he should have retired a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, your, your thinking, your speech, everything starts to tail a little bit. 
-hmm. And I'm of the school that you should back off and let the younger people take it on. You could do it. You might be able to do it as well as 90% of the people. But it's, it's a good thing to know when to step back. Yeah. Well, I wanted to uh, finish up with a, a couple of things. One, you mentioned your kids, um, and you, there's a great line in your uh, in the the notes that you sent me, where you said that your kids understood that you wrote about other people's kids, um, and you mentioned in sort of your recommendations to the future generation about uh, balance. And I'm curious if you have any sort of regrets about the balance that is uh, put on tension uh, when you pursue an academic career with clinical work and having four kids and how you uh, counsel your young surgeons. I think if you've listened to the other podcasts, Larry Lanky had some, you know, admitted to some challenges uh, in this area. It's, it's very hard. Well, I would say uh, if you're going to go into a demanding career, <clears throat> I, I see from what I'm observing that it is very hard if both parents or highly in highly demanding careers. And so I was fortunate and really have hardly any regrets. I always kept my children involved with me. I always took them on rounds to the hospital until the lawyers made the rules so strict that you couldn't do it. They understood what I was doing. And I had enough time that I spent with them. If you look carefully at my jobs, I trained at the University of Toronto, I mean, in Iowa, and then went to Toronto, but Iowa City was a gentleman's place of learning orthopedic surgery. You know, we didn't have enough trauma coming in at that time. We had to go off to Wisconsin for a rotation for trauma. And so I, my time was a little bit protected in time for thinking and time for research and doing your work through my entire residency. It was really focused on learning. It's an academy for learning, not an academy for fixing bones in Parkland. And then my job in Colorado never got hugely busy, and then I went to Scottish Rite for seven years. And that was a very protected environment then because we did no acute trauma. They weren't tied in with the Children's Medical Center at that time. So that allowed me to have time to think and coach my daughter's soccer team and do other things like that. So I've always had enough time to spend with your kids. I think if you spend too much time with your children that you can hurt yourself and them by not allowing them to become independent. One of my favorite cartoons of all time was a New Yorker cartoon about 20 years ago. And it showed this man sitting down sort of at a bar talking with his friend. And he said, you know, I just got fired from my third job within the last five years. But there's one thing I can say about my life. I never missed one of my kids' soccer practices. <laughs> and to me, that sort of struck, struck a tone. You yeah. can miss things. You don't have to go to everything. Your children actually don't want you cheering loudly for them at these events. And so I don't think my children missed it, but I did not have a spouse who was in a super demanding career. My wife was a teacher and a librarian, and she was completely dedicated to spending lots of time with the children. And so I thought I could do it relatively easily, but I picked, we had a, we had a marriage that was compatible and my wife was willing to do many of the time-consuming things, and I generally have had practices that didn't demand I be, you know, in the hospital all weekend doing major traumas, et cetera, although we have a lot of trauma at Children's. And so I don't think I encountered many difficulties. I think it's possible, but I don't advise people to marry someone else in a very demanding specialty and think that you can do, together do it. I think it's hard. That's good. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask, um, and it was just, uh, I was struck by this quote, and I find it incredibly true. 
but I wanted to see if you had other comments. And you said, uh, your surgical life can be boring or very interesting, and you will determine your course. I think that's incredibly true. Uh, focusing on others rather than yourself provides a good start. I was wondering if you could discuss the latter uh, half of that a little bit further. Well, in a sense, many, many people in highly accomplished professions and specialties, etc., are a minor egomaniac. You have to really think you're pretty good at this to make advances and do more difficult procedures, et cetera. So there's a natural tendency, I think, for people that are in the top 5% of the IQ range, perhaps in the country. I don't know anymore what it takes to get into medicine. Maybe we should say the top 20. There's a tendency for these people to be a little self-centered and see themselves as someone who's maybe slightly above the rest of the crowd. There's a tremendous tendency to have people that were overly praised by their parents and their teachers to think they're the greatest in the world, and they end up finally being a surgical specialist. And you can tell this right away. I always ask people, because when, I, whenever I meet anyone in medicine, I say, okay, who's the chief of children's orthopedics at your place? I say, who's your chief of orthopedic surgery for your whole town? And I say the two questions I ask him. One, what is that chairman's specialty? Two, would you send your mother to them for an operation without calling ahead and telling them that you were important? In other words, that surgeon, a clear thinker, and cares for people equally. And so that is a very big issue. And the second thing I say, is this a person who loves himself most? Or is he interested in having the people around him succeed? And that determines the character of a human in our specialty, especially if you're teaching. Because you can go to some places, they say, this chief, all he does is make arrangements so that I get ahead and the younger people get their money. And he's not looking out for himself, he's looking out for others. Now, none of us are, good, are perfectly good at this. And I'm sure there are areas in my life where I didn't follow that. But I think that's the ideal. Yeah. Focusing on yourself is so noticeable. People now have sophisticated psychiatric meters. They've been trained and understand this. And if you're there to impress them, or you're trying to impress them rather than trying to help everyone around you, it's immediately noticeable. And we could list a long list of these right now. I could give you all the names, but I don't think it should appear in public broadcast. <laughs> yeah. Um... Well, Dennis, I, I want uh, this has been incredible, and we're coming. I'd, I'd sort of set ahead of time that we talked for about an hour and a half. Um, but I would love to know if there's anything that you wanted to touch on that we hadn't. Um, uh, I thought this has been incredibly enjoyable for me. No, I think we've covered all of the areas, and I've had a very interesting and satisfying career. I didn't. I didn't further emphasize the thing about bore. When I said you said that about boring, avoid a boring life. I, I guess I would focus a little bit on that. Yes. In closing, and just say that that is not so easy to do. The one thing I figured out when I got into medicine is most of these little nerdy kids who just liked little science lab things at home and weren't very interesting and didn't do too many sports and so forth turned out to be nerdy adults, no big surprise. And then they turned, went into medicine, and that most of medicine is very boring. The people are not very interesting. The conferences are tedious. And, I sp and when you say how to make it another way, well, one, if you're someone who doesn't see the sense of humor and like to laugh about things, it's a little bit hard. So it's not so easy to make it interesting, but you are able to do it. And at every point, I think, by thinking about other people, reading about other things, making analogies of the culture as a whole, how would Donald Trump be making this decision? We have Trump jokes all the time. You say, what are we going to tell the parents now? 
We did a tremendous operation. This child is going to be fantastic. You're going to find this was the best operation in the world I did for your kid. So sort of knowing how to laugh at yourself, laugh at the culture is something you can do, but not you can't change your personality extensively. And so you don't necessarily have to be entertaining and amusing, but by thinking and talking about other people rather than yourself, you've made a start. So that's about yeah. all I can say. That's, uh, that's great. Well, this has been a, a real joy. Uh, like I said, you were somebody who I had at the very top of my list from the beginning. In fact, I sort of wanted to, I certainly haven't perfected it, but I wanted to gain experience in this concept of podcasting beforehand to make sure that I could carry on a, a reasonable conversation. So thank you for your time today. 